Well, welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati, although these days it's also the Twitterary Center. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with a growing collection of more than 80,000 books available to members, located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati, with a stop on the streetcar across the street from the building, and online at mercantilelibrary.com. We always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Frank Russell, designer of the uh, lecture hall in which we're sitting. He's also the director of the Niehoff Urban Studio at the University of Cincinnati. And Buck Niehoff, who's directly connected to the Niehoff Urban Studio at the University of Cincinnati. He practiced his entire career as an attorney in Cincinnati. I'm Albert Pyle. I'm the erstwhile executive director of the Mercantile Library. Uh, today, we're talking with uh, Paul Goldberger, who will be here on the 22nd, or if you're listening to this late, he's already come and gone and you've missed him. He is the uh, architecture critic uh, for Vanity Fair magazine. Before that, he was at the New Yorker, uh, and before that, he was at the New York Times. Uh, and we, are, we consider his uh, input absolutely vital to our uh, intellectual life here. Welcome, Paul Goldberger. Thank you. Delighted to be here. I think we should each start out by saying what our favorite building is in Cincinnati. So I'll turn it back to Albert. Oh, I was, thought I was okay. going to be able to dodge this. I'm going to, I'm going to name an, an unknown house in Mount Auburn called the Gorham Worth House, which oh. is a beautiful federal house tucked away on an avenue that nobody can get to with a stupendous backyard. And it's uh, very close to downtown, and nobody knows it's there. One of the oldest houses in Cincinnati. Yes. Is that where John Cornblue lives? I don't know. Who, I don't know who's in there right now. I just wish yeah. it were me. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, my, my favorite building is not a building. It's a bridge. It's the Roebling Suspension Bridge, uh, which was started in 1856. And they desperately tried to finish it during the Civil War as a means to get uh, troops and materials uh, to the south, but they didn't make it. It was finished in 1866. And the wonderful thing about it is it's a prototype for the Brooklyn Bridge. It looks like a tiny miniature Brooklyn Bridge. And after 150 years, it is still completely uh, usable. Uh, and uh, it is a beautiful structure. It has a 150-year active life, and it's a, it's a wonderful piece of uh, architecture, in my opinion. Hi, Paul. My name is Frank Russell. I'm an architect, and I direct a program up to the University of Cincinnati called the Niehoff Studio, coincidentally. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> our focus is urbanism, urban design and urbanism. My favorite building is the Museum Center, which formerly the Union Terminal, which is a, an extraordinary... Do you know it, Paul? Yes. I do know it, absolutely. It's one of my favorite things in Cincinnati also. Yeah. Well, I think my two favorite buildings in Cincinnati have already been mentioned, or favorite structures have already been mentioned, in fact. 
and that's the um, Roebling Bridge, which I've always admired as a sort of prototype for the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, I always thought of it as sort of like a Broadway show that was tried out on the road. Uh, there, there you see when it, it was made, to, the ideas were made to work and how they came together. Uh, and then uh, what I persist in calling the old train station, which is not fair to it because it has such a wonderful new function and, and has done so well at that, uh, but it is either the very last or one of the very last great train stations made in America. And while I, it's great that it does continue to have new life in this new civic function, I've always had a little bit of sadness that it couldn't continue to be a train station. Because it worked great. It, it, it had its moment of glory during the Second World War, and right. it fulfilled every designer's promise. It was great. Exactly, and it's, it's a shame it didn't, didn't have a longer one, but such is life, and of course, Cincinnati is very lucky that it's still there, even if not in its original function. And uh, I guess I would add to that uh, the um, uh, <coughs> Netherland Tower, which is one of the great Art, Art Deco skyscrapers in America. And... Uh, a, a really wonderful, wonderful building in the heart of downtown. What, what do you think of the Zaha Hadid Contemporary Art Center building? I actually like it, um, and I think it's an, it was an important moment for Cincinnati. It was also one of the great, uh, you know, key moments in her career as her first executed American project. Uh, I think it's a. It's an unusual building in many ways, not just for Cincinnati, but for her. Uh, it's a little bit more restrained than some of her other work, but it also shows that her architecture can integrate into an urban fabric and does not have to be just a, a sculptural object standing alone. I think it, it works very well on that street corner, and that's one of, one of my favorite things about it. Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's been a very positive presence in Cincinnati. I, I don't know if, I hope uh, you all agree, but I'm, I'm not sure. I think we probably do. Uh, half a block away or a block away is uh, another sort of interesting building that I'd be in. I would like to know what you think can be done with it. It's the, the same family that put up the uh, Netherland Plaza, put up uh, the Terrace Plaza at 6th and Vine. Ah, yes. Uh, which yes. was, yeah, that was the um, Chicago office. SOM did that. The, the Terrace Plaza is a, a all too often forgotten piece of post-war architect architecture in America, and it was actually one of the most innovative mixed-use structures and one of the earliest post-war mixed-use structures. Uh, at this point, I think it has a kind of uh, oddly nostalgic quality, uh, even though it's it's also deteriorated very badly, if, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Uh, but it's um, e even even in perfect condition, it's not uh, <clears throat> exhilarating. But there's a uh, to me a great sort of beauty and historic importance to that building. Yeah, particularly um, if you know when it was put up. Mm -hmm. It was very much, I think it's a surprise that it's late 40s. Yes. Can I ask oh, it, you? It was way ahead of its time. Yeah. And, Can I? Uh, I mean, there was clearly something going on in Cincinnati. It would be interesting to know just what that something was. 
that would lead to uh, that much architecture of, of high ambition and quality downtown. Well, I, I can, we can head straight to the Emery family, which was at that time still very, very rich, and that was, that was uh, John Emery's project. Could, I, I want to put you on the spot here. One of the problems with the building is it's got six blank stories from the, from the street up, no windows at all. And, I know. And, uh, what, what do you do with that? Is it okay to punch windows in that, or do you have to treat it like a, like a holy object? Well, it's a, that's a really, really good question. Um, ideally, uh, you would leave it as much intact as possible, but it really is a remnant of an age when um, we didn't understand urbanism as well as we do today, and we didn't understand uh, the extent which the experience of walking along the street defines a city in so many, many ways. Uh, blank walls were strangely common in those, in those years. It was just, the, and we, I think we were still much, much too attuned to accommodating to the automobile rather than having the automobile accommodate to the city, making the city accommodate to the automobile. And so the idea of a city as pedestrian friendly was just not front and center in the consciousness of even the very best architects and even the very best and most sophisticated clients. And this building is a, a pure and as clear an example of that as we could ask for, of that blind spot, really. So the, the question is, do you, do you save the blind spot as a historical artifact at the cost of uh, making that part of downtown Cincinnati pleasanter, or do you compromise the building and make downtown Cincinnati pleasanter? Uh, normally, I would tend to lean to the latter, which is compromise the building and argue that uh, buildings are very rarely so sacred they shouldn't be touched, and they need to be tweaked often to be made useful and viable in a different age. Uh, here, there's a, one little part of me that says that is such a compromise to everything that building was about. It's almost a shame, and yet, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess the other question for me is whether something could be done right at ground level that would make the pedestrian experience more positive uh, and yet still leave the, the middle of it. Uh, it all depends, of course, on what use it's going to be put to and, and everything else. Well, they're at work on that right now, and, and we're hoping that, that the committee that's, that's finally wrested it from, it was, it, was, it was held by people who weren't taking care of it, and, and you're quite right, it's had significant damage, but um, plans are afoot, so we'll see. Good, yes, I, so I'd heard, and, and it's a really interesting question that I think I can probably answer better when I'm back in Cincinnati and see it again, because it's a few years since I have seen it. Paul, you'll be interested to know that um, <clears throat> some of the similar considerations were um, uh, focused on Zaha Hadid's building, that the, uh. Uh, there wasn't enough um, vitality at the ground level. Mm -hmm. So they ended up renovating the first floor 
it wasn't a tremendous makeover, but um, but significant changes. They they uh, moved the book the bookstore and they put in a cafe, and so and it gets used. And it gets used. So a number of tweaks had to be made. I'm curious when you come. You probably haven't heard about it because it's just recently done. But um, I'm curious when you come, what you would think about its effect on the architectural integrity of the building. Right. I had heard about that, and I'm I'm curious myself to know what I I think of it. Um, were the changes done in coordination with her office or, or not? No, uh, they were not. In fact, she hated the changes and, uh. and wrote a very strong letter to the Board of Trustees of the museum objecting to them. Although I think the changes really enhanced the building and made it much more welcoming. It was, very, it was a very difficult building to want to go into uh, until mm -hmm. the changes were made. Yep. And I, I think she also took objection to the Namjoon Pike statue, the, the Metrobot that got uh, moved, back, which was supposed to be by the Contemporary Art Center, and it finally got screwed to the sidewalk there. Apparently, it wasn't <laughs> dignified enough. She, uh. she didn't hold back. She was not a person who kept her feelings to herself. No, she was not, and uh, she was... She was not always gentle of spirit, although she, she could be, but she, um, she was not. Now, and I think that, that building held a very important uh, role in her sense of her own work because it was her first built work in the United States. Yep. yep. And, uh, it was, uh, and Cincinnati was the first place where she was really given an opportunity relatively early in her career to do something major. And so one, it's, it's not a surprise that she felt excessive about it. Uh, but, you know, all of that said, uh, you know, buildings are not frail, fragile little hothouse orchids. And they often can take far more than either preservationists or architects often believe they can. The question always comes down to the specifics, you know, not not uh, the principle of touching a building or not, but the facts of whether what you are doing uh, support it and contribute to its uh, ongoing viability or do not. And, uh, you know, in this case, uh, I certainly agree, can agree without even having seen it that that building was not as user-friendly on the outside as it might have been, and that there... Uh, that there's been enough evolution in our sense of how people use the city and the sidewalk to want to take it beyond where it was in her time. Uh, the question is, can that be done without compromising the fundamental ideas of the building? And uh, uh, we'll, we'll see. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing it and seeing what I think. And you'll see a lot more people on the sidewalk, too, so that's good. Paul, in, in, in one of your books, uh, you had a quote. It said, Cincinnati has a real downtown where people walk on the streets. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk about the pedestrian aspect of great cities and then the other things that make a great city. Well, I think, you know, 
one of the things I've learned in my life as an architecture critic is that uh, in a city, the street is more important than the building. I mean, the experience of a street defines a city at least as much as the experience of individual buildings. Um, I mean, the, the pleasure of Paris and Rome and London, and not to mention even New York, uh, comes less from individual buildings as from the sense of the ensemble and the experience of moving around them and through them, often past plenty of uh, anonymous or even, you know, second-rate buildings that are part of that ensemble. Uh, and it's not just a matter of moving from one great building to another. It's the spaces in between and that they, they often mean much more. Uh, I think we're all much more aware of that than we used to be, and we've learned it hard way by, by ignoring it. Uh, it, doesn't, it hardly means buildings don't matter, but it means the experience of the pedestrian, the scale, the visual stimulation, the life, the activity of the street and public spaces and the public realm mean just a tremendous, tremendous amount uh, in, in, in making a city actually a convincing place to be in and a viable and exciting place. You know, the, the notion that the, the journey is as interesting as the destination is one of the things I think that defines being in a city. Uh, it, it almost seems like heresy for someone like me to say this, but I less and less think that the experience of architecture and the experience of urbanism are in fact the same. I mean, they are compatible and they're often, love of those things is often shared by people. If you love cities, uh, you, you love great buildings and usually if you love great buildings, you love cities. But in fact, they kind of exist in an almost independent way. And uh, a, a building that is a, a great architectural experience like, you know, Chartres Cathedral, or, uh, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water, or uh, Thomas Jefferson's University of Virginia, uh, those are not necessarily, you know, urban presences at all. And what makes them great, and indeed they are, you know, extraordinary and great things, uh, is not the same as an urban experience. Uh, even when great buildings are in the middle of a city, of, you know, uh, their, their architectural greatness and their urbanistic success, if they have it, uh, are almost like sort of two different measuring sticks, two different metrics that we can apply to them. Uh, some buildings, some very rare buildings do well on both, uh, but, it, but not many. Uh, you know, I think of something like Mies van der Rohe's Seagram Building in New York, which is a a great work of art as an object. It is also a great urban building as a contributing uh, force to the urbanism of midtown Manhattan. But that doesn't happen so often, actually, when, it, when a building scores sort of a 10 on, bo on both. The other things I think that one can say about a great city uh, you know, is it does have a kind of ineffable 
very difficult to define energy to it and and buzz and a sense that this is a place where <clears throat> people have come together physically and interact in many, many different kinds of ways within a limited geographical area that we hope and trust, like, you know, a nuclear reaction will continue to just produce positive energy over and over again. Of course, we all know it's vastly more complicated than that, and much of the energy they create is not always positive, and, and cities bring challenges as well. But uh, what's become very, very clear, and I'll talk about this a little bit uh, when I'm in Cincinnati later this month, is that um, when, when you don't have that, you are missing an incredibly important uh, force in, in the culture and in society. And uh, the argument some years ago when, uh, the, when digital technology first began to take over our lives, that it would make cities obsolete, because you could be anywhere and do anything from anywhere, has in fact turned out very much not to be true. Um, and it, it's fascinating to think about how cities that were supposed to be made out of date uh, are in fact in many ways more energetic and stronger than ever. Uh, and that uh, so much of technology, in fact, uh, takes place in traditional cities and in downtowns. You know, Google, probably the single most important force for changing the world that we we live in now, uh, has more employees in Manhattan than anywhere in the world other than its own headquarters in Silicon Valley. And, uh, and even in California, they have moved a lot of their operations to Los Angeles. And so much of the of Silicon Valley tech has moved towards San Francisco. So, you know, um, cities continue to provide a function that uh, was, I think, in the 90s, as all of this stuff was beginning to be have its impact for the first time, was not understood, or and it was wrongly predicted by a lot of people that the uh, it would make cities obsolete. Um, if I could drag you uh, away from the downtown for just a, a little bit, sure. there is still um, still way uh, the majority of Americans live in suburbs, and right. uh, I'm, I'm interested in you, in your take on the suburban efforts. There there are some suburbs that are trying to reinvent themselves and rebuild themselves and uh, uh, create instant old places, instant instant downtowns. Uh, have you been out to any of them? Do you think any of them are doing well? Do you think that any of them will last? Uh, what's your take? Yeah, um, I'm mixed on a lot of those places. Uh, I understand and share the impulse and respect and share the impulse behind them, I guess I could say. that. Uh, I don't share them, but I know that <laughs> we have to deal with it. But, uh, you know, I'm not usually a great fan of these things and, and you know retro often tends to get a little bit too cute um, I have been a number of times to Easton outside of Columbus uh, which is uh, 
you know, one of one of the major sort of efforts at this kind of neo village. Um, in the continuum where you might have, you know, a traditional downtown at one end and total complete automo- automobile dependent suburban sprawl at the other, you know, this is kind of in the middle and we should give it credit for being in the middle. Uh, I'm all for suburbs trying to be a little more like villages where possible. And I'm all for uh, anything we can do to encourage pedestrianization and get away from the car a little bit more. Uh, A lot of that has to do with transit systems and so forth, too. You know, if you... uh, if you live walking distance from a train uh, that will take you downtown, that's very different from having to get in a car and drive to a train stop or drive to downtown and and leave your car, you know, in a downtown parking garage all day. Uh, and the fact that we are trying to do somewhat more of that in several places is all to the good. Um, I also know that most communities don't have, uh, nor will they ever have, nor necessarily should they have, uh, the density to um, uh, live in a, you know, a, a more traditional, fully urbanized environment, uh, nor should everyone. I mean, you know, choice is important, and there's nothing wrong with having a backyard. Uh, there is a real difference between having a backyard that is in an older or somewhat denser, more village-like neighborhood where you can walk to the bus or walk to the train or whatever, and living amid sprawl where there is no way to get a quart of milk, let alone go to work, without getting into your car and driving somewhere. And the desire to get away from that as the exclusive model, I think, is a positive development, actually. And, and I, I respect it and encourage it. Uh, in the end, how much it will mean, uh, none, of us, none of us can be sure. Uh, but you're right to raise the question, because in fact, uh, for all we talk about urban revival, the majority of Americans don't live in cities, and certainly, and, and indeed, many, many, many Americans who live within city limits nevertheless live in uh, what we might call suburbanized neighborhoods. And so it's not just a matter of what kind of high-rise apartments we build. Uh, when you get to town on the same walk that you, that we, drag you over to the uh, Terrace Plaza, uh, we'll drag you down to the corner of 4th and Race Streets where I think it's the city's first urban renewal block was uh, where our, our planner at the time, Peter Corey, uh, uh, caused the city to tear down uh, many, many small shops uh, and built a huge uh, garage, parking garage that was considered urban development in the 60s. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. And, and absolutely. It, it's about to be torn down. They're they're tearing it down now. It was so horrible. 
included a ramp for uh, uh, automobiles that looked like a place where someone would get murdered, and indeed someone was. <laughs> uh, so you, uh, the, this is to be redeveloped as, but I'll, I'm sorry to say, more parking plus at, at least apartments, but we'll, we'll show you that. Great. No, I'd like to. I very much like to see that. I mean, you know, no no city at a certain point uh, was uh, able to transcend the, the sort of juggernaut juggernaut of that viewpoint of how of and and you know it emerged out of a belief that the traditional city that we had inherited was uh, was tired, crowded, dirty. Uh, Essie, and that the thing to do was to clean up the mess. Uh, and it was only much later that we learned that, in fact, cleaning up the mess was making a worse mess. I, Paul, I, I have a question that's been troubling me about architecture for a number of years now. And let me take you back 20 years to October 1996, when you were here in Cincinnati for the dedication of the Peterman, Peter Eisenman building at the University of Cincinnati, the College of DAP building. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you wrote uh, some wonderful pieces about that dedication. One of the things you said about the building is that it does not have a clear entry. And since that time, uh, architects have increasingly downplayed the door. Uh, in many building, many new buildings, it's hard to even find the door as, as to where to go in. Thomas uh, Main's building at the University of Cincinnati, the Recreation Center, if you didn't know where the door was, you'd never find it. Why is it that in architecture today, doors have become, entry doors, have become sort of irrelevant? Unlike, say, the entry to the Metropolitan Museum in New York or the entry to the yeah, public, library. public library in New York, which is staggering, a staggering... Right, sta right, right, right. Um, I don't think that that phenomenon or that failing is a, quite as widespread or as general as your question would suggest. You're right, it has happened often and continues from time to time to happen. Uh, and I think it's, a, it's the end product of an attitude that treats the building as a work of sculpture more than as a building. And, you know, if our, uh, uh, sculpture doesn't need an entrance, a building does. And if you were thinking in terms of pure abstract form, uh, then the entrance kind of screws it up. Uh, if you are thinking of, if you are thinking of your job as an architect as making a series of spaces for human use, and the challenge is to make them aesthetically pleasing and interesting and even perhaps exciting, not to mention beautiful, um, having a door does not necessarily contradict that. Uh, if you're thinking primarily of making abstract sculpture, however, then kind of doors get in the way and you want to downplay it. Um, again, as I said, I don't think it's fair or accurate to 
suggest that the absence of a clear door is uh, inevitably something that we connect to ambitious and challenging architecture. The two examples you've given definitely are in that category, and uh, those are serious flaws to those buildings, in my view. Uh, I think we can also point out other buildings in which, in fact, the entrance is pretty clear um, and is not hard to find. I mean, uh, I think just, just, uh, Frank Gehry's uh, Walt Disney Concert Hall in um, Los Angeles comes to mind, which is, you know, certainly a, uh, an assertively sculptural building, and yet it addresses a corner very beautifully. You cannot miss the entrance by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and in fact, the entrance is in its own way, even though it doesn't look like the New York Public Library entrance, there is as much attention paid to uh, making the entrance a part of the composition. So it's all a question of, again, uh, whether the architect is able to integrate his or her sculptural impulses into the solution of architectural problems or whether those sculptural impulses, instead of serving the architectural problem, get in the way of it and contradict and conflict with it, which we see all too often, unfortunately. Very, very helpful answer. Thank you. Well, we're all... No, it's a great question. It's a great question. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and there's no question that... Uh, that's one of the, I think, many flaws in the Eisenman building. Yeah. Uh, well, we're all looking very, for, very, very much forward to your visit and to marching you around town. I know. <laughs> I, I, I am very excited about that because it's been uh, a while uh, since I've been in Cincinnati. The last time, actually, was, was a few years ago for, um, I think it was 2013, uh, to see and speak at an event surrounding the restoration of uh, the, the Rao House, I think it was, um, on the, <clears throat> uh, I don't remember that the sounds, neighborhood. That sounds right, that sounds uh, right. On the yeah. edge of town somewhere. Um, that, that wonderful modernist building. Yes. By Emily Pulitzer. Yeah. yeah. Well, we will be happy to see you. Great. Well, I'm, I'm very much looking forward. It's going to be fun to be back. Great. Thank you for your time. Great. Thank you all very much. I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you for joining us today on The Twelfth Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile L-I-B. My name is Albert Pyle. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Frank Russell, Buck Niehoff, and our guest by phone, Paul Goldberger. 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was directed by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to, don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.